You are tuning in to Missouri NEA Connects, a podcast to focus on all things Missouri education, from policy to practice, so that each of us can unite, inspire, and lead from where we are. We're happy you're here. About two weeks ago on MNEA Connects, Otto gave a legislative update during the legislature's spring break. During that conversation, we had a pretty lengthy discussion surrounding assessment, accreditation, accountability in the state of Missouri, and we thought it would be advantageous for our listeners to hear that conversation, especially with the most recent release of the APR scores from the new iteration of MSIP. In our conversation, Otto really goes into the history of accreditation, assessment, and accountability in the state of Missouri When we talk about assessment in our conversation, we're referring to the standardized tests that are delivered in the state of Missouri, and those are the tests that are then used by MSIP uh, in the calculation of the APR, which then is used to classify school districts. And accountability in education is important as long as it is used in terms of an improvement, Um, just like MSIP is an improvement plan. Uh, It should be used in a way to help school districts improve so that they can be the best they can be for their students and communities. So we really hope that you enjoy this conversation. We thought it would be a great release considering the most recent happenings in Jefferson City and in the state of Missouri. And enjoy the episode. It can be the case that something an agency does can affect how laws operate. And I don't know that I can think of a better example than the fact that right now the law requires that DESE Mm -hmm. accredit, or strictly speaking, classify the public schools of the state, uh, which we interpret as accreditation. And that how that accreditation occurs matters to a school system because there are district-level consequences that are dire that relate to either being rated as, quote, provisional or unaccredited. Mm -hmm. If you're provisional or if your scores under the APR, Annual Performance Report, are consistent with being classified as provisional, even if they haven't actually formally made that accreditation status change, then you become subject to outside interests and entities allowed under law to create charter schools in your district and start pulling state and local and federal funds uh, away from the district resources to fund the students who attend the charter schools as those are built up and created. And then if you're unaccredited, the transfer law says that students can transfer to other districts and the home district has to pay tuition to that other district at the other district's tuition rate up to, and then there's kind of like a stop loss amount, which is a little over 7,000, which is based upon the transfer program from the St. Louis um, era of DSEG. And then, of course, if you're unaccredited for two years, then you cease to exist, you know, contracts with teachers other providers of services and goods all go away. The, the district doesn't even exist per se. And then the state board comes in and does something. 
you know, lapsing and attaching to another district or one of several other weird, you know, kind of takeover situations that can occur. Um, none of which seem to have a particularly positive track record. Um, and, and, you know, these, these consequences attach based upon the accreditation status. So when DESE comes along with a new round of MSIP and they take the papers and throw them down the steps and more than land down at the bottom in those lower categories, then suddenly you have these consequences attaching to a lot more districts. And if you combine that with open enrollment, for example, hmm. and you have 100-plus school districts that are provisionally accredited, extending all over perhaps you know Kansas City, St. Louis, Springfield, metropolitan areas, and the open enrollment bill applies to charter schools, then suddenly you have a combination of policies that we haven't seen before that would, you know, where it's played out in other uh, diverse metropolitan areas, it has profoundly resegregated those school systems on a, a region-wide basis. And so that's something that we are profoundly opposed to, to doing to our school system and to our students in Missouri. Now, House Bill 253 doesn't currently... Uh, extend to transfers to charter schools. And so even if the consequences are felt by districts because of MSIP 6, it wouldn't also then be matched up with open enrollment. But the Senate version, Senate Bill 5 from Andrew Koenig, does include uh, transfers to charter schools, which of course would have been limited if it was pretty much just Kansas City, St. Louis, and Normandy. But if, you know, if we're suddenly expanding that set of districts by a factor of 50, then it becomes a much more extensive provision. So that we expect to be very much a discussion and struggle on the Senate side. It would probably be uh, a bridge too far to try to get that bill through the Senate on its own. But uh, in, in terms of the votes, don't know how that it, it would be close at best. Um, and probably, you know, the, as I mentioned earlier, the House Bill 253 passed the House, 85 votes in favor. But I think the Rep Representative Pollitt has avoided including charter schools because he knows that that probably detracts from his support on the House floor. So I think he's cautious if it came over, you know, about trying to bring that bill up uh, on the House floor if it also included charter schools. So that's going to be a fight on, you know, both on the Senate side. And then if it comes back to the House, it'll be a fight on the House side. And meanwhile, then there's the question, does the legislature do something that affects over the coming years how MSIP operates and how districts are categorized and accredited either under MSIP or something else, or if we join the other half of the country and don't accredit at all? That piece about the other half of the country, that makes me want to research more into that because I only know what has happened in Missouri in terms of history, um, living it as a teacher, as a student and then a teacher. Um, and now as I am watching this unfold, I would love to know what other states um, do. And like we were just talking earlier I'm just deeply curious about accreditation, accountability, 
in other states and what that looks like in this country and what is, there's never a right answer for everything and it always depends on context, but what is the best answer for Missouri? Right. So uh, I think you can, you know, there are several groups. NEA is an example. There's also things like the Council of State Governments and the Education Commission of the States that will, and uh, National Conference of State Legislatures. They'll sometimes do, like, you know, one of their staff people will go and essentially document on a particular policy area, here's what every state does. And you'll see like the little table that shows all the different state policies. And we have, I don't see anything from like the current year on state accreditation and accountability on that, but um, there's things from a few years ago that kind of document that. The history to a degree is fundamentally just if you look back a number, and if you go back enough decades, um, we started, we got to the point where every kid basically had the opportunity to go to a high school, which wasn't really the case a hundred years ago. But then, you know, we, as we consolidated, we really started, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, we got to the point where every kid had a high school to go to. And then the, the colleges wanted to know that a high school was providing, you know, a sufficient level of quality and, and extend in their program that they could have a confidence that the graduates there were going to be successful at their college. And so I think a total of six regional accrediting agencies came to be um, that were basically focused on accrediting high schools. And some of the old laws in Missouri really spoke to whether the district operated an accredited high school. Uh, when we amended it in 93, that was the, that was the language in the transfer provision. It was talking about whether or not a district had an accredited high school. Mm. And so uh, eventually states started to be interested in having some kind of an accreditation for schools other than high schools and in particular districts. And so those regional accrediting entities responded to that and built up the capacity, you know, i.e., they built up, you know, standards and trained head staff who could, you know, make accreditation review and judgments. Um, typically, the you know these are already people who are involved in education and have, you know, experience in, in operating programs, districts, high schools, etc. And so states were then able either in their own auspices or using one of those kinds of agencies to accredit districts. And that has typically been a decision by the state department or board of education. And so some state, you know, commissions, boards, et cetera, have chosen to accredit. Sometimes they use one of these accreditation agencies. In Missouri's case, under MSIP, we have for you know, a long time now, essentially been constructing our own little mathematical game mm -hmm. for accreditation. Uh, other states you know, either never chose to or eventually got rid of it. The other half of the equation, so to speak, is non-accreditation provisions that are called accountability. Those have been piling up in the statutes over the last few decades, and those typically are things that are driven by 
and done by the state legislature. You know, you, a number of states have the uh, school building report card where it has a letter grade. We have a requirement to do a report card that documents, you know, various things, staffing and scores and graduation, et cetera. And in some cases, in some states, they actually assign a letter grade. And then they'll actually be, it's kind of a no child left behind like There will be consequences like if you're a D or an F school, uh, which basically means you're high poverty, then, you know, suddenly consequences attach like transfers, you know, loss of accreditation, you know, dismantling the having to reconstruct your schools as charter schools because, of course, you know, that's an innovation, uh, although really it's just a different kind of governance under a non-elected board. And so those those kinds of provisions are typically done by the legislature, whereas the accreditation may or may not be done by the State Board of Education. I don't know how many people know the, this full history and can keep all of this straight. And a lot of the people making the decisions, I can almost guarantee don't. <laughs> and, well, that's term limits are, are have a play there, right? I mean, yes. they have a role there. And I'm not just saying, like, I'm not even just saying legislators. I'm saying, like, people at DESE, people in school districts, people, just anyone placed in the sphere of education in some which way, school board members. They don't, like, I'm someone who likes to know all of the things before I make a decision or move on something. <laughs> and so it's, a good, it just, it's a good thing you don't work in the legislature because me, sometimes you, yes. you just have to do stuff. It gives me heart palpitations just to think, <laughs> oh my God, we're making all these decisions without understanding the history, understanding the impact that it's had in other places, understanding the consequences that might follow, not even like will follow, that might follow. Like, oh, right. we're going to implement this, and these are the things that could happen. Like, well, let me tell you something that's going to make you feel a whole lot better. Please do. <laughs> so, you know, I started working for the Senate in 1990. I've written one and a half school formulas, uh, the charter school law, a whole bunch of stuff like that. So I've been in the middle of the policy work of education in Missouri for a long time. And I really didn't have that much of a perspective on for example, the topic of accreditation beyond what I had come to know in Missouri until a kind of conservative legislator, state representative, Kurt Barr, uh, asked me, so I don't, what's the, you know, he, he knew that I had been working on education stuff for a while. He says, okay, tell me about accreditation. Like what do other states do? And I, you know, in the legislature, you sometimes get asked questions, the answer of which you don't know. And you never make anything up. Uh, you should never do anything other than be totally honest in terms of what you say in the legislative process. Because if you are known to say things that aren't true, you'll never be trusted or asked a, a second question. And so I said, I don't know, but I'll find out for you. And so that's when, and that was like, I don't know, maybe nine years ago, 10 years ago. So I had been working in education policy for a pretty long time, and I knew some things about other topics like school finance and school safety, but I didn't know very much about the accreditation topic. A lot of people just 
you know, unless you've moved around and had to work in that space in other states, you might not appreciate that. You know, the, the only other exception I can think of is probably State Senator Carla Esslinger, who has worked upon a time for one of these accreditation agencies. But if you haven't done that work or done a lot of policy work in education in a multitude of states, how would you know? You you know, Missouri, we've had MSIP for a long time, pretty much as long as any active teacher has been in the classroom. Yeah, since the 90s. -hmm. Actually, it was started, I think, in the late 80s. Late 80s. There you go. Because we had, when, when I was writing school finance stuff in 1993, MSIP was not brand new. It didn't start with Senate Bill 380. I think there was like an Excellence in Education Act that I didn't write. Is it Outstanding Schools Act? No, no, that's the, that's 1993. That's okay. the MAP. That's the Commission on Performance. There was a school formula rewrite, the okay. A-plus schools program, a whole bunch of stuff. But prior to that, prior to me even starting to work in the Senate in 1990, there was like an Excellence in Education Act sometime in the 80s. And I believe that was the point at which the policy decision and directive came to be for the, quote, MSIP program. So it was already kind of... Um, going, I think it was about through its first cycle. So that followed a nation at risk? Yes. Okay. Okay. But it looked very different, you know, in its early generation, you know, it had the, like the, the stuff you have, the stuff you do, and the outcomes were all three, you know, and they have fancy names for those, but you know, like how many counselors you have, you know, the inputs, so to speak, Mm-hmm. The process, you know, how you do stuff and outcomes, broadly speaking, were all important. Mm-hmm. As, as, as we've moved along under the mindset of no child left behind, mm-hmm. we have now moved to a point where it's almost all driven, you know, we're like we're, we're, not, we're no longer obsessed with instruction, so to speak, or, you know, access to resources. We're now obsessed with standardized testing and outcomes because the MSIP has told us we have to be. Because when you got to like MSIP 4 and MSIP 5, it was very strongly influenced by basically standardized test scores. And now they've kind of, in a sense, doubled down on that with MSIP 6 in that, you know, now they they give immense weight to both status and growth on the federally mandated 17 tests that we do to a student. So that's all that's that's all that's all that's mandated from federal is the 17 tests. Correct. Hmm. And they have to be used as a part of the determination of your bottom 5% lowest performing schools. Although the federal law doesn't then say, you know, what kinds of interventions are required uh, with regard to the schools. I have so much to think about. And I, like I said, I like to know things before I act on them. I also like to be able to to know something before I speak it <laughs> into existence. So I, and that's just me. Um, as a- that's a, that, you know, that's a, that's a good, good way to work. Um, you know, one of the things that we try to do, um, you know, in, in the operation of the legislative session, I'm always trying to help make sure that, I, you know, myself and our resolutions committee and, and our leaders are thinking about what are the things you know, what, what do we anticipate are the things that are going to be talked about? And what are the things that we want to be 
the ones who know something that matters on that topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a that's a part, an important part of the work these days is to figure out uh, because there's so much that could be known is to figure out what are the things that are most useful to know. You know what topics and what kinds of information about those topics. For so, for example, you know we've spent some time over the years looking at what's going on in assessment. Um, you know, we work with a group called Fair Test that really is trying to improve, you know, the kind of the right use of standardized testing for purposes that standardized testing can be useful, mm-hmm. while taking it out of all the many areas that it's not the right fit for. And so they, they've been an important resource. Um, you know, I worked with Representative Paula Brown, who had an interest in this topic, um, in kind of finding out some of the things that other states are doing on assessments. Mm-hmm. And then, as I said, you know, we, we kind of got asked by Representative Barr nine or ten years ago, um, at a time where we weren't, I think the legislature wasn't particularly prepared to act to make any changes, but, you know, there was concern about at that time standards and assessments. And that was when the work groups concept was created. And so there was some questioning. And so that, that kind of spawned some research on these topics that we've kind of continued to, to work on. We actually had a project underway in 2015 on kind of having a more robust set of school indicators, indicators of school quality that a local school system would design and then implement and then talk to its community about. And we actually got a bill through the house Hmm. in 2015 that's basically kind of spelled out that process, House Bill 1023. And in fact, I think it passed 152 to four. And one of those guys was Jeff Pogue, who voted no on everything. And so it had a lot of support. It was uh, sponsored by Catherine Swan, who was the House Education Chair. But we didn't have a companion bill moving on the Senate side, and so it you know, died. And then, of course, it didn't pass in 2015. And then ESSA came along mm-hmm. in December, the first week of December in 2015. And now we were like, well, you know this kind of changes stuff. We have to figure out what does this law mean? What changes are going to come down in federal regulation? And of course that takes some time. So we kind of paused that effort for a couple of years to see, you know, how that would shake out. And then of course we had the pandemic. And so we're, we're essentially picking back up Mm. on work that had been of interest uh, leading into ESSA being enacted at the federal level. The, you know, the good news is that at this point, we no longer have some of those most uh, injurious provisions of No Child Left Behind, but the state board and the, and the department have kind of just kind of continued on in the same direction, you know, rather than using some of the abilities that that, that law give to change course, to, you know, to kind of question and innovate. We really haven't to a degree, you know, kind of push the envelope. Other states have pushed the envelope a lot more in, you know, limiting how much they're using standardized testing, a stronger reliance on locally developed assessments Mm -hmm. that are better aligned to instruction and learning as as more of a basis for what 
the, either the state or the community attends to. And do you know what states those, what states are those? Just so I can like reach out to my uh, counterparts in those other states because I'm very curious. I would start with Vermont. Okay. Which is not a big surprise, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, they tend to be kind of an innovator, mm-hmm. and so they've had an expectation of their. They call them school unions, which I kind of like. Yeah. Um, they don't call them districts. So their school unions are expected to do the federal testing, and I think I actually think it kind of says, and they use it for the purposes required under federal law. But then they're also expected to have locally developed assessments aligned to teaching and learning. Mm-hmm. They're also expected, for example, to offer multiple pathways to graduation, you know, really to kind of design a pathway to graduation that meets a kid's uh, career path plan and goals. Hmm. And so they have a lot of of expectations at the local level um, that are kind of explicit in the the policy. I'm not sure how much of that I have to remind myself how much of that's actually spelled out in law, a lot of it, I think, is actually spelled out in the standards and the regulations done by their agency. Yeah, I'm definitely going to look into that. I'll reach out to Vermont as well because I'm just super curious. Um, kind of like how I reached out to North Carolina for that working yeah. survey. Yeah. Um, I was really um, disheartened to hear that they don't really do much with it, <laughs> or at least that's what I was, uh, it was relayed to me that they weren't aware of and how that information was being used. Um, but I'm still referencing North Carolina's working condition survey often and going back to it because I'm just intrigued, very intrigued. Well, it, yeah, it does. And I, I think, I'm not sure who you were speaking to, but I think it's probably varies, but you know, the, the critical thing is, you have to have that data and you have to collect it, you know, in a reliable and comprehensive way. And then you have to have a relationship at the building level, essentially, to fold that back into, okay, what does this suggest? You know, we're doing right. Mm-hmm. We're doing wrong. and need to change things we're not doing that we ought to think about doing. Right. Um, so that's the challenge. And I'm sure it's like, you know, from zero to one. Uh, depending upon which particular school building you look at. Mm -hmm. It goes back to what we were saying before I hit record on this. It's not (laughs) what is the result. It is how are we going to use these results in which to improve and or continue that success. Um, That's actually one of the reasons that we've tried to articulate about the conversation on accreditation, because that's the contrast really Mm -hmm. between the way that a district is interacted with under MSIP in, in relationship to the department versus one of these uh, regional accreditation agencies. Mm-hmm. With the department, you know, they construct this mathematical thing and then they just run all the stuff and they hand you your number and say, there you go. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. With an accreditation agency, they expect up front, okay, go do your self-evaluation and then we'll go over it with you. And then we'll show up like real people show up and they interview, they observe, they ask questions. They, they are just there to study and evaluate. Then they write up a report. They give you, you know, kind of a rating. Um, 
as far as kind of like the overall determination, but they also will then spell out, you know, things you do well, things you need to stop doing, things that you're not doing that you should, that give you, you know, concrete things in terms of a roadmap for improvement. And so it's more of a two-way conversation than a one-way conversation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And And it leaves you with something that leads you, you know, in a positive direction Whereas just being told you're a 71 or an 83 doesn't tell you a whole lot other than you either do or do not need to worry about your existence as a school community. So really think it, it, we think that that is a process that has something to re- recommend it. And of course, it's also you know, a perfectly legitimate option that we just, you know, if you look at some of the provisions that we talked about just now with Vermont, you know, if you have an expectation to do the federal testing, you have an expectation to have, you know, local, locally developed assessments. You have an expectation of, you know, reporting that and other quality indicators to your community. What, you know, what value does the accreditation process have unless it's going to, you know, kind of come in and offer essentially a component of technical assistance and guidance? Other than that, it's maybe it's unnecessary Half the states have basically said yes. It's unnecessary to call it an improvement program if there is no avenue. Yeah, yeah. Under under what definition of improvement is giving somebody a number and saying, "Okay, there you go." Yeah, an improvement program. It's not because that's not what I do with my students in class. I don't just give them the results and say, "Okay, let's move to the next unit." <laughs> you can't, right. You can't do that. Now, as much as I'm sure everyone loves to hear Otto and I chat or me give a state board report update, this platform really is for MNEA members, and we really want to be centering our members' voices and their expertise and what is happening in the classroom. So members, please remember there are RFPs. We would love to have this platform for you and to hear your voice. So we look forward to you hosting this podcast. So fill out those RFPs, get in touch with Samantha Hayes, and we can't wait to hear your stories, hear your voices, hear your expertise.